0: um hello
1: and welcome to composer quest season four i'm charlie mccarran your composer host in minneapolis and i'm really excited to kick off this new season of the podcast this intro theme you're hearing was created for the episode by my first guest roger dumas He's a brain scientist and synthesizer whiz, best known for his cool sounds in the 1979 disco hit, Funky Town. Roger was also about to become John Lennon's go-to synthesizer guy, but we'll get to that story a little later. First I have some people to thank for making this season happen. I was overwhelmed by the response from all of you who signed on as patrons, so thank you. We hit the fundraising goal way sooner than I expected, partly because a commercial sponsor came forward to help fund this season, and that's lynda.com. I haven't done any advertising on this show before, but Lynda is kind of a special sponsor. Their mission is a lot like the mission of this show. They provide video courses for learning just about anything, including songwriting and music production. So I'll be mentioning them at the beginning of each episode and sharing a little one-minute teaser for a relevant course of theirs in the middle of each episode. If you're interested, you can sign up for a free 10-day trial at lynda.com slash quest, and that's lynd acom quest. Also in each of these episodes, I'm going to have a little shout-out segment for my patrons. And of course, like every segment on my podcast, it has to have a theme song. Now a moment to thank my patrons. I want to thank the Bafo Yucks dudes for becoming patrons. They're really nice guys who make comedy music, and Tom Gioroso helps run the Spin-Tune songwriting contest, which I've mentioned on the show. Check them out at bafoyucks.com, and that's B-O-F-F-O-Y-U-X. My next patron to thank is Michael Mairana. He's a young composer who recently moved to Minneapolis. And he's completed five quests. So congrats, Michael. Check his music out at soundcloud.com slash michael myrana which is M-A-I-O-R-A-N-A. The music you're hearing was actually made in part by Tom and Michael. We had a patron jam session live over the web using the site Plink. It's pretty fun. Check it out by googling Plink Labs. Coming in at the $3 per episode level is Court Stratton which means he gets an original jingle in his honor. I slaved away at this for minutes upon
2: minutes. His name's called Stratton, and he works at Naughty Dog. Coding the PlayStation, it's his dream job. He saw the very first triangle rendered on the system. It was red, it was red. His name's called Stratton, and his tongue's invincible He pops hot peppers up to two million skull He also was attacked by a turkey as a child In New Zealand, in New Zealand His name's called Stratton, and he's got a dog named Loki I bet if you asked nicely, Court would do the hokey pokey some sweet chip music for Nassau Elmo at postgoodism.com, postgoodism.com.
1: One more announcement. We have two new quests coming up very soon. The first one is already posted, and it's a very short quest. You'll only have a week to finish it. There's also $100 at stake for it, so check it out at composerquest.com quest14. Time to get on to my interview with Roger Dumas. Roger rose to synthesizer fame early on, and since then he's found a new passion, studying the brain's response to music. He's done some pretty amazing work, including recreating a melody out of just brain data, which seems eerily close to reading someone's mind. I met up with Roger at his University of Minnesota lab to talk about his discoveries and about his album Pieces of Mind, music based on brain data. Roger, thanks for having me over here to your research lab and studio, I guess. Oh, thanks, but
3: Charlie. This is great.
1: Yeah. So I'm looking right now at a wall of synthesizers. Here's, here's, <laughs> here's the mode. How how do you have it slowing down like that, gradually?
3: Oh, I'm using an envelope generator to modulate the frequency of the LFO that's controlling the sequencer.
1: (laughs) Cool. We had someone on, who, uh, Mike Olson, who does modular synth stuff. uh, Oh, fun. And so he kind of explained that, so listeners might know.
3: Yeah, Moog's the are basics, great. at least. Yeah, right. I worked on those back in 1973 at the university. I'd spend all my free hours. I was only one of two people out of fifty thousand at the university who even knew these things were there. I'd spend all my time, all my evenings down there, just with cables draped around my neck and turning knobs. And
1: did you say you wrote the manual to the? I wrote.
3: Or, I wrote manuals for Moog. Yeah. Uh, gosh, that was a while ago. I wrote the Polymog owner's manual and the multi owner's manual, patch books for a lot of their synthesizers. A patch book is a, is a book that shows you where all the knobs should be positioned and where all the patch cords should go because back then there was no such thing as memory. You know, Synthesizers didn't remember anything you did to them. Uh, what's your composing process like when you're working with them? Oh, back in the day I would lay awake nights thinking of a sound that I wanted to create. And usually it was something I had heard on a record somewhere. Somebody had this really cool sound, and I wanted to recreate that, and so I'd I'd desynthesize it in my mind. Desynthesize means to make one out of many, e pluribus unum, all that. And I would figure out how to plug the oscillator into the filter, into the amplifier, and use an envelope generator. And there are infinite number of patches on an old modular synthesizer. And sometimes I just ended up making explosions. So I'd do a 12-chord blues, 12-bar blues, and I would just end each phrase with a huge explosion. (laughs) This was from my mentor, Eric Stokes, at the University, the grand old man of electronic music over there and experimental music. Great guy. I think there were about six nuns in the class, and they took up a lot of time in the studio. <laughs> and we'd listen to things like Drip City. If you ever get a chance to hear Drip City, you uh, especially heard, would appreciate that. I've heard the name, but... I'm... The composer took a half-inch piece of recording tape that he had recorded a drip onto, made a zillion copies of it, and spliced them all together, and made this tune called Drip City... Music Concret was the art of taking natural sounds, recording them, and then manipulating them. And it was all done with magnetic tape.
1: Hmm. I started editing videos on tape, but. Oh, man. uh, Yeah, I would never want to go back to that. (laughs)
3: Did you ever edit audio tape? No. People who edit audio tape ended up bleeding a lot. Um, (laughs) Because you're handling razor blades all the time with your bare fingers, (laughs) you end up cutting yourself a lot. (laughs) You slice uh, at a 45 degree angle across the tape. And the reason for the 45 degree angle is so that you won't have a butt splice, an abrupt change in the signal. It's sort of a crossfade. Yeah. It's the original crossfade.
1: (laughs) Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you do here at the Brain Science
3: Center. What I really like to do is study brain response to music. And... That includes trying to see how the brain predicts the next note that might come in a melody. In order to do that, we used a corpus of 10,000 musical themes. There's a great book called A Dictionary of Musical Themes, and it's got 10,000 different classical themes. Huh? We digitized every one of those 10,000 themes and put them into what is known as a corpus and use that as a basis for our analysis of brain prediction of next note. So we took every pair of notes in every theme in this book and we calculated the frequency of their occurrence and from that we calculated the probability of their occurring in any piece of Western classical music and then we played some Western classical music to a subject, Yezu Joy of Man's Desiring by Bach. And we will be able to discover if the brain tracks next note probability. Uh-huh. And it's just a hop, skip, and a jump from there to using brainwaves to control synthesizers.
1: Oh, that's incredible.
3: Yeah. That- <laughs> We've made some progress on that. Uh, So that's next note probability. Um, We also study music prediction. Um, We played a bit of music to a subject. The subject was me. I listened to this bit of music. Pink Panther theme. Yeah. Then, using linear regression, we discovered that the brain tracks the melodic contour of a musical piece. And here's what we've come up with so far from the brain data. If you play those both together, you can hear that we're not very far off. So the brain is tracking the melody. The signal is in the brain. It has to be, of course. That's where we appreciate music. So decoding that signal is all that is keeping us from being able to play a musical instrument just by thinking about it.
1: Wow. So uh, how is it that you get from taking brain waves and figuring out
3: which notes are... There. Let's stop recording for a second. I'm going to show you the MEG. Okay. Sounds good.
1: Okay, we're going on a field trip. Here.
3: So the Brain Sciences Center is a rabbit's warren of scientists all working on ways to understand what the organ, the brain, does when it's presented with different stimuli. Our main tool for using this is the magnetoencephalograph. And here we are in the suite. Uh, the huge, heavy door swings open, and in here we have the Dewar, which looks like a giant hairdryer. Uh, it's filled with liquid helium. It's super cool because it's filled with two hundred and forty-eight superconducting quantum interference devices, also known as squids. (laughs) And these measure the electromagnetic fluctuations off of the cerebral cortex. And magnetoencephalography is really the only technology that allows you to precisely capture the brain's response. FMRI uh, takes about two or three seconds for the signal to perfuse through the brain. And EEG measures the electrical activity, but this is somewhat smeared as it goes through the soft tissue in your skull. So magnetoencephalography, we measure it a thousand samples per second. It's pretty fast. So it's pretty high resolution and it's unsmeared, undistorted. We play audio stimuli to the subjects through pneumatic tubes.
1: Um, and, and plastic tubing, right, because you can't use metal in here? You
3: can't use any uh, electromagnetic metal. We can't have people with welding scars in their eyes because they have little tiny bits of metal that the MEG picks up. Lori Anderson, the famous composer, uh, performer, was here. We invited her to be a subject, and oh, it was so sad we couldn't use her because she had some... Too much iron in her body, or something, because every time she breathed, all the waveforms on the screen would just go off the charts like a big seismograph <laughs> signal.
1: What were you going to have her do? We were going to
3: make music out of her brain waves, and uh, oh. we were just going to record her listening to, um, I don't know, a musical stimulus of some sort. But what we wanted to do was make a whole album of music off of her brain. So this
1: is where potentially the first brain synthesizer will be. The brain computer
3: interface, a so BCI, percent, uh, brain music computer interface. Oh, oh. cool. <laughs> I, I think I'll call it B MIDI. Whoa, brain to brain. music. Brain you... to musical instrument digital interface.
1: <laughs> I like it.
3: Yeah, good. Yeah, Thank you. Cool. Yeah, this is great fun. It's about a $3 million installation, and we have to keep it constantly filled with liquid helium. And this is my favorite part. When you close this door, we have to seal it against all outside forces. So, listen to this. That's the sound of 10 pneumatic clamps coming down on this door. A tank couldn't barge through this door right now. We use mu metal and all kinds of other exotic shields in this chamber to keep out the Earth's uh, background field. The signal off the brain is about a billion times lower than background radiation of the Earth. We're going to go in and and have a look at Kratos. This is our cluster. Now, in here, we have more than a thousand CPUs. This is a supercomputer. It's got its own air conditioning system, and it's smarter than anybody within about five miles.
1: (laughs) (laughs) As in, there's more computing power than (laughs) most brains?
3: That's right. Yeah, all the data gets sent down there, and um, we do a lot of modeling of brain functioning using the cluster. One of the things that I'd like to accomplish is the creation of a method for people with neurally controlled prosthetic limbs to train themselves how to use these limbs in a natural way. And these days they're using sight. But it's, it would be better, I think, if we combined the visual with the audio. And to that end, we have captured brain signals of somebody drawing a pentagon with a joystick. So they're lying in the MEG suite, they see a pentagon on the screen, they have a joystick on the right hand, and all they do is just attempt to draw a pentagon. And I take all those data points and turn them into MIDI events, which then drive synthesizers. And so I have an example of that here. This is a person drawing a pentagon, and what you will be able to hear is the brain planning to turn corners.
0: So
3: those That's, little flute yeah. arpeggios. Yeah. Yeah. You can it, when you look at it on the screen it ties together perfectly,
1: yeah because um, we're seeing this the actual drawing that this person's doing, and every time there's a corner, it does that
3: and so we think that we should be able to capture that signal off of a subject in real time so that as they approach their goal picking up a cup we will have pre-programmed a template for that particular musical sequence and every time they attempt it, they will be able to get closer and closer to it by matching the sounds hmm. so they match what they're actually doing to the pre-recorded template or the melody Hmm. That's cool. Yeah, I I think so. I I think it should help people cope with amputations.
1: So when your brain-to-midi system gets started, your idea is that someone will just... Be able to imagine a tone. And it'll be converted into a a number somehow, or...?
3: There are a number of hurdles to overcome. First, we have to be able to get an EEG signal that's clean and unadulterated by movement. When you move, your motor cortex just sends out this huge signal. So that's why anybody using an EEG cap to control a computer has to stay perfectly still. Mm. Uh, and then uh, beyond that, we have to find where on the scalp the strongest signal can be derived. Then in order to tell the synthesizer when to play a note, I think we'll have to have some sort of physical tapping with the finger, just a small, on a, mm. on a pad you could, we could just tap. it. So the rhythm would probably have to be generated physically. But the control over the notes could come right off the brain Hmm. ideally yeah so So, um, another application for this would be uh, communication for people that are locked in nonverbal communication
0: yeah
1: (laughs) going back to the pink panther melody a little bit uh so i'm i remember in a psychology class learning that there are actual specific spots in the brain where Like when you're looking at an edge, there's like specific neurons that fire. That's right. um, Is it the same with music? Pitches?
3: Well, there probably are neurons that respond to musical features. I mean, there have to be. That's what my thesis was, was <laughs> built on. So, yeah. so yes. Um, pitch is one musical feature. Of course, there's rhythm. There's tone color. There's melodic contour. There are neurons that respond to how far away a pitch is from tonic, for example.
0: Mm.
3: Mark Canghizi wrote a book called Harnessed, how the brain was formed in part by music, and he claims that our music is the way it is. That melodic contours are arcs because that's what we saw in nature. You throw mm. something up and it comes back down in mm. an arc. And most melodic contours, at least in Western classical music and a lot of other musics, are the same thing. They start on a tonic note and move up and then come back down. Birdsong is a lot like that, too.
0: Hmm.
1: Versus... Starting higher up, c- going down, and then looping back up right. would feel un- kind yeah. of unsettled. It verse.
3: would. So, it, would. It, it wouldn't feel natural. That's why most of our songs... Happy birthday. Mm-hmm. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Back to Earth. Yeah.
1: I wanted to ask you about your we we've been talking about sonification of brain data yeah um and you put out a cd based on brain readings from right. is it from your yourself no, or
3: uh, these are subjects in many of the different experiments that we've run here we sample at the rate of 1000 samples per second so we have to slow this down if i'm going to use individual samples to control the synthesizers so we slow it down by a factor of 150, and the individual samples get converted to MIDI events. In a piece I call the frenetic fugue, I have one area of the brain, the left frontal, is assigned to trumpet and French horn. And then I have a left parietal area that's assigned to uh, strings like viola and pizzicato, marcato, and bowed strings. And then more central sensors, there's four of these, are assigned to woodwinds like flute, bassoon, oboe, and clarinet.
1: Experiencing while they were getting...
3: The oh, they were drawing shapes.
1: Oh, okay. For this one. Cool.
3: So this, this subject was drawing a shape, and you can't tie the music, in this case, to the behavior because we slowed it down oh, by a factor okay. of 150. So every note you're hearing actually represents a millisecond in time. In one area of the music, one part of the brain is active before another part of the brain, and it's only a a few milliseconds ahead of it but my guess is that the subject was preparing to turn a corner at this point and so one area of the brain says okay other area of the brain get ready to move and you can hear the flutes which is the center area um, jumping up into a high register moments before the violins do the same thing.
1: Did you notice a difference in the shapes they were drawing making a difference? Other than no,
3: because these are simply sonifications and more for my amusement than anything at oh, this Oh, sure, point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, so we haven't tied them to
1: behavior. Sure. So it's kind of like just using
3: nature's patterns to make music. Right, right. and I think it's funny that... We can call it music, and everybody understands what we're saying. But it's not music. It's an apparently ordered series of notes. The brain is always looking for patterns. The brain is a categorizing organ. And so everything we see, we have to have an explanation for it. If we didn't have an explanation for what we were seeing and hearing and feeling and smelling, we would go crazy. (laughs) So... You, you hear something like this. I hear patterns in there. I hear patterns that repeat. I hear little melodies. They aren't random they're generated by the brain. They're not composed. It's data. But it's data that's organized in some way. I don't know what, how it's <laughs> organized, but it's coming out with melodic contours. You know, I could even sing along with this. Mm-hmm.
1: With all these, you're,
3: you're also putting it into certain keys. like. Uh, oh yes, yeah, you know, I'm the arranger. I don't think up the melodies, but I decide how many players there are and what instruments they're going to play. The key, the range, the dynamics. It's fun to take somebody else's brain waves and arrange them mm-hmm. for arrange them for a, a bluegrass band. Mm-hmm. Arrange them for a Japanese tea ceremony. Or a music box. Or a bunch of guitar players. People have called it music because it sounds like music. Mm -hmm. For no other reason.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we talked about how our brains interpret pitches. Um, How about rhythms? Uh,
3: According to Mark Canghizi in his book, Harnessed, our brains interpret rhythms because of the natural rhythms that surround us. Our breathing, our footsteps, the wind moving through the trees, there are natural rhythms. There's natural syncopation in sounds all around you. And we are naturally disposed to appreciate rhythms.
1: You you mentioned uh, that rhythmic entrainment can uh, help with pain and fatigue.
3: Rhythmic entrainment is a really valuable adaptation I find that if I run to music at precisely 168 beats per minute, it matches my pace perfectly. And I can run for half an hour without even thinking about it. The time goes quickly. And I'm not distracted. I'm entrained. I am synchronized to the music. Um, I don't have to make a decision every time I want to put my foot down. That decision's already made for me. I'm just following the director. David Lee at Edinburgh has a video out that shows a patient suffering from Parkinson's disease coming into his gym. And in the first clip, this poor guy is being led around the gym by an aide. He can barely put one foot in front of the other without stumbling. They take him upstairs and have him... Imagine stirring a bowl of dough in a rhythmic fashion. And using that as a template, he then comes back down to the same gym, walks around unaided, and at the end of the clip he's actually jogging. Hmm. it is through imagining this. Through imagining, through entraining to an imagined rhythm. Hmm. Huh. So uh, a big problem with Parkinson's sufferers is that they cannot initiate action easily. But they can respond. You can ask them to throw a ball, and they have a lot of trouble. But they can catch a ball simply. Yeah. So, And that's why I maintain that playing Baroque instrumentals in the background while you're doing some nonverbal task... Say if you're creating art, you will probably be more involved with your project. You'll probably not even notice time going by. Because there's this theme song going in the background. I maintain everybody has their own theme song. We often wake up with it. And we entrain to that. It it becomes our metronome. And as a result, we don't have to decide what to do every moment. Mm. Something is already doing that for us hmm. yeah
1: that I, I've always been interested to how drum circles work because it seems like even people who aren't, aren't or at least they say they aren't that great at music and rhythm still as a group when everyone's drumming at the same time it seems like everyone gets entrained in the same rhythm I don't know yeah that's like a, a I think thing
3: that- I think everybody should play classic rock. <laughs> everybody should be able to grab I don't care if it's just a cowbell, they should have the opportunity to sit down with their peers, their friends, and bash out Louie Louie. Because the synchronization that occurs is indescribable and the feeling of belonging is incredible and indescribable
1: well maybe you could tell us about the Gentlemen's music club
3: oh gentleman's music club yeah you can go to soundcloud and and look up the Gentlemen's music club there are a bunch of older guys like me that get together and play jams you know it could be grateful dead rolling stones Buffalo, Springfield, the music from our youth is very important to us, just as everybody's is. Our our impressionable years are those years when music makes its biggest mark on us, I think. And so I haul out chestnuts, uh, Led Zeppelin, and we, you know, spice it up with our own flavorings, and sometimes they're just laughable. We record every one of them, and I put them up so you can hear. (laughs) And there's no mistakes, because as Frank Zappa says, you're just moving air molecules around. Nobody's going to check up on you. (laughs) (laughs) So there are no mistakes. It is what it was. That's great. And (laughs) I only record them so we can hopefully recapture that feeling later on in life. Listen back to that and think, man it
1: was fun yeah I did that with my cousins a little bit we had a jam group where we would just come up with a, a song in one night record yeah. it and never really right. play and, it again yeah so, I know but, but you remember that as a good time yeah yeah. so you guys have some originals up there too a uh, jam uh,
3: do we I, I, well, I have one or two mm. they're kind of hidden up there um <laughs> You're so right in your so wrong. Yes. Yeah, I like that one. <laughs> Composing and multitracking is fun, but it, it can be such a time hog. You know, sit down. Well, you know, you're mm-hmm. editing, editing away, and you want it to be just right, and you go back and you keep revisiting it, and it's never done. And mm-hmm. No, I just want to play something. I
1: liked your manifesto you had on SoundCloud, too. It reminded me of Fight Club sort of thing. Oh, you're, <laughs> like, you're so, uh... so
3: intuitive. Yes. <laughs> I, I did model it off of Fight Club. There are no rules, but rule number 42 is... Everybody plays every time. Yeah. And gentlemen don't give a dang about public opinion. <laughs> That's why I put all the recordings up there, because they're embarrassing. They would be embarrassing to people who cared.
1: Yeah, <laughs> but, but we don't care. <laughs> cool.
3: <laughs> yeah. We're just capturing the moment.
1: It says the guy who has gold um, <laughs> records up here. Uh, I can't not ask you about those. Oh.
3: In a former life, I was the whiz kid for um, people that wanted to make sounds using synthesizers. Funky Tone is one of the tunes that I worked on. Cynthia was having a little trouble hitting the high note for the phrase, gotta get me moving, get me grooving with some energy. You know, it's a hard note to hit. And she was having a rough day, and the producer, Stephen Greenberg, came to me and said, what can we do? Can we do something with this? And I said, yeah, I have a vocoder, a Moog vocoder, and let's try it out. And So I hooked up a multi to it, and we ran her voice through it. She sang, and I played the notes on the multi and tweaked the vocoder, and we got a robot voice out of it that, Became the signature for the tune. Oh,
0: moving,
1: do you think that was one of the first times folk coders had been used in a in um, a big pop tune, I guess, at well, least. Well, I or... don't know.
3: Laurie Anderson used a vocoder in "Oh Superman prior no. to that. No. no, they had been used, but I think the timing was right. Disco was hitting in a big way. And Stephen took this tune, and al- along with his other tunes like Rocket, out to discos on either coast and really promoted them. So it didn't hurt that they got played a lot.
1: Well, I, I grew up listening to that song loved it <laughs> that was a that's such a fun song as a kid like it didn't it sound fun. like anything oh, else oh yeah
3: Stephen's yeah. ideas were great I mean as a producer I don't think he had a parallel back then he he would listen to other music of the day um, Paul McCartney had a tune called don't say good night tonight and in there there was a sound that went and we listened to that over and I Realized it was a snare drum being played through a vocoder with white noise. So every time you hit the snare drum, the loudness contour of the snare drum triggered the vocoder, which opened up its amplifiers and filters to allow the white noise through. So it got this really cool percussive noise sound. And we did our variation of that in the middle of Funky Town. That's what the drum solo is. <laughs>
1: Hey everyone, time to break in with a little promo for lynda.com. Since Roger talked about using vocoder effects in Funky Town, I thought I'd check and see what Lynda could teach us about vocoders. Lo and behold, there's a great video course called EDM Production Techniques, Extreme Sound Mangling. In the section on vocoders, the instructor first shows you how to create these classic robo-vocals out of this fairly bland vocal performance.
0: I know that it's gone, and I still haven't found a way to go on, but there will be.
1: Here's what the vocals sound like after working with the vocoder effect.
0: I know that it's gone, and I still haven't found a way to go on, but there will be. A bright light that shines on me.
1: The coolest part of this course is when the instructor starts creating some really wild effects by adding a vocoder to this drum loop.
3: As you can see, it's just a standard drum loop, nothing really special. But let's turn it into something else. First we'll start by time-stretching it. Notice that the tempo is set to 28 BPM. That's really slow, I know, but at this tempo it'll create a ton of anomalies with the stretching algorithms we're using. All right, so as you can see, we've got a lot of crazy time-stretch artifacts to work with now. Now let's put a vocoder on it and set it to track the pitch.
1: He then starts tweaking parameters on the vocoder to get these cool sounds, which remind me of the robot sound design in WALL-E. Joining Lynda.com will give you unlimited access to tons of video courses like these, which are great if you want to learn a new skill or a new piece of software. Check it out and get your free 10-day trial at lynda.com slash quest. That's lynda.com slash quest. Okay, now back to my talk with Roger Dumas.
3: We have been talking about music concret, and I realize that I owe a lot of my success back in the day to the manipulation of natural sounds. I worked with the Jets on an album, and I ended up with a gold record for it. Um, But I was basically bashing Heineken bottles together and sampling them and using them for my drum machine programming. Um, On uh, Funky Town, Steve Greenberg went out into the parking lot at Sound 80 Studios and honked on his BMW horn for the opening (laughs) Um, for the janet jackson control album i used drum samples on a drum on a limb drum machine on my kitchen table and just spent hours programming rhythms for that album one imagines that if you're working with janet jackson you're some big, expensive studio, and there's celebrities all over the place and an entourage and and a big party going. No, it was just me late nights at my kitchen table.
1: (laughs) Did you get to
3: meet her and hang out with her? No, I I, I hung out with Terry and Jimmy. I was at flight time and then over at Terry's house. Um, No, never met her. Hmm. As long as you're asking about my past. I was asked to help a... Seventeen-year-old kid from North Minneapolis, and they wanted some cool sounds for the demo that they were going to do for Warner Brothers. And so, I brought my Oberheim four-voice synthesizer into Studio B, and there was this kid in there, introduced himself as Prince, Prince Rogers Nelson. And I said, "You know, fine. What do you want to do?" And he says, "Well, you know, I kind of want this ee- sort of sound." And so we spent hours just coming up with just the right sort of sound for what eventually became Soft and Wet, his Hmm. initial Hmm. album. (laughs) Greatest guy to work with, very quiet, funny, very polite, but also very private and... We'd spent a long time sitting next to each other on the synthesizer and I was programming it. But he asked me to go outside the studio every time he had to play it because he didn't want to have me watching him play. I thought that was so cute. <laughs> 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 and he was so nice to me years after that. You know, he'd invite me out to Paisley Park and uh, I'd show off synthesizers to the band, and, and he was always very nice to me. Hmm, cool.
1: I did hear in the news story that you met John Lennon too.
3: Oh, yeah. I was working at ARP Instruments at the time. I was the product specialist, which meant that I wrote owner's manuals for their synthesizers. And I'd been asked to show off synthesizers to an elementary class out on Long Island. So I drove from Boston down the coast out onto Long Island. I'd never been in New York before. And I was there in my three-piece suit and hair down to my shoulders showing off an ARP odyssey to these kids who are really loving and I was making fart sounds and stuff <laughs> like that. And then the principal came into the room and said, Um, you have to take this phone call and it was my boss at ARP saying, you have to get to the record plant in Manhattan within the next couple of hours because John Lennon wants to meet you. He said, Oh right, you know, come on, I'm in the <laughs> yeah. middle of a I'm in the middle of a thing. I can't leave John Lennon, yeah, right. No, no, this is true. So I finished up the demo and drove down Long Island and through Manhattan during rush hour. It was gridlock. And I thought, oh, no, you know, I'm going to be late. And I pulled up to this old brick building in a dark part of town. Just as John Lennon was walking out the door with May Pang, he had given up. On oh, no. And I ran up and I said, "He said, you must be Roger Dumas. And I said, well, yes, I am. He says, well, come on up then. And, and so we, three of us rode up in this old freight elevator, and we walked around record plant, and he showed me the Chamberlain, which is also was a variation on the Mellotron, the Chamberlain that they had done all the Sgt. Pepper sound effects on, all the hunting horns and beagles and horses and stuff. He played all these sound effects for me, and we went into... A, one of their studios, and um, I helped him figure out his ARP string ensemble for a while. And we sat down and talked about the future and how I could become a liaison from ARP and come down with these synthesizers and help them use electronic music in all their productions. And and I went out of there just feeling like a million bucks. And then I think it was that December he was shot. Oh, wow. yeah. <laughs> Again, That's... very quiet. And very polite. Huh.
0: That's
3: cool. Yeah, I, 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 most of the celebrities that I've met have been well mannered. Do you miss the
1: days of doing that kind of
3: engineering work? And It was a different world. Um, working in a recording studio, in a professional recording studio, with people that are used to staying up all night, was difficult for a family guy. I didn't really know anybody that was raising families as an artist because they were in the studio all night long. Jean Roussel invited me to New York to do some synth programming for him. So I brought my Oberheim 4 voice to Manhattan, got to the studio. The session didn't start until 10 o'clock, and it was at 3 in the morning, and everybody was still going strong. Andy Newmark was the drummer, and I said, Andy? I'm just dead. How are you guys all staying so wide awake? He said, well, some of the guys are in the back snorting a line. (laughs) And here I am the farm kid from Long Lake, Minnesota. I thought, oh, man. So this is what the recording business is like. There's a budget for drugs. (laughs) Needless to say, I didn't have any. I fell asleep on the floor. (laughs) Drugs were not ubiquitous for the sessions, or if they were, I certainly didn't know about them, but recording is a hard life. You're up all night, you don't get to socialize with your wife's friends. Um, If you have kids, you don't get to see them very much. It's wonderfully exciting for a young single man. And it would get to be very old for a mature adult. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well,
1: I would argue that you're doing cooler stuff now. (laughs) Oh, thanks. Yeah.
3: I love using my brain.
1: Yeah. There's a study you did about pre-whitened music.
3: Um, Um, Yes. Yeah, could you explain what that means, actually? My colleague, Apostolus Georgopoulos, my mentor, friend, boss, loves music, and wanted to use the same statistical analysis on musical pieces that he uses on brain data. This is known as pre-whitening. In pre-whitening, the object is to remove all other influences from a particular magnetoencephalography sensor. We have 248 sensors, and each one is at a specific spot over the person's head. And a lot of things can influence a magnetoencephalography signal. You can have a direct current change. You can have movement. Eye blinks can change it. Um, Heartbeats can have an effect on the signal. You want to get rid of all the artifacts, and you want to get rid of the signals from surrounding sensors. So you pre-whiten it, you detrend it, and what you end up with is a signal that looks like noise but actually has inherent in it important information.
0: Hmm.
3: By what we do after that is take every pair of sensors, and there are 248, so that means there are over 30,000 pairs, and we compare them to see how similar they are in time. And what we come up with with the brain signal is amazing cross correlations. And if you look around here, you can see every one of these brain images shows colored areas where the sensors are closely correlated. It means they're doing the same thing. Mm, okay. Apostolos wanted to know if this phenomenon is found in orchestrations of classical pieces. As in
1: instruments <coughs> playing similar things with each other.
3: Oh. Yeah, uh, instruments play similar parts. We took four pieces each by Bach, Beethoven, Mozart, and Vivaldi. And we applied this pre-whitening process to every instrumental part. So we analyzed the second movement from Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. If you ever saw the movie Zardoz with Sean Connery? I did. pretty bad. Yeah. (laughs) But they play this allegretto from the Seventh Symphony in there to great effect. And it's one of my favorite pieces of music. So mm. run right out, stream Zardoz. Zardas. <laughs> You'll see more of Sean Connery than you ever
1: wanted. To <laughs> see.
3: In the future. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we detrended every part in that orchestration. There's 23 parts, everywhere from you know piccolo down to contrabass. And we ran cross correlations between these parts, and lo and behold, even though all the melody had been stripped from every part, we found that groups of instruments were closely linked. The martial instruments, uh, trumpet and timpani, were closely linked. The winds were closely correlated. The strings, closely correlated. And the brass and percussion, closely correlated. Throughout all these different composers. And for each composer, we came up with sort of a signature of their framework for composing. Hmm. When Mozart and Beethoven started composing earlier on, there was a lot of complexity between the different orchestral sections. Uh, The violins would drive the timpani and the contrabass, and the woodwinds would drive the timpani, but they would also drive the violas and the cellos and the brass had a lot of interaction. This complexity tended to dwindle as these composers matured. So when you get to their later pieces, such as Symphony No. 7 in Beethoven's case and the Overture to the Magic Flute for Mozart, you see very simple interactions between the different sections. It hmm. seems to be a natural progression that these composers would simplify their templates.
1: Yeah, you'd kind of think it would be the other way around, but, uh, yeah, I well, guess... Well, they,
3: they discovered that less is more.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess their harmonies probably became a little bit more wild as they went along. More
3: complex, more sophistication later on, right.
1: I wonder if also it was like they wanted to write more complex harmony, but realized if they did that... And, like, crazy interactions with instruments. Maybe they thought it was too much, so they... Right. I don't know if that's um, the case, but...
3: You might be right. They they might have changed their palette. They, They may have decided to experiment with things other than melody and counterpoint, for example. They may have wanted to make bolder statements later on and you can do this by having more correlation within uh-huh. sections. Yeah. They were looking for compactness, more coherence within the orchestra as a musical instrument. Uh, so they wanted parts to stand out and, and play roles. So their earlier pieces, if you want to compare it to a stage play, earlier pieces had lots of actors on stage and lots of movement and interactions and subplots and later on they become real thought studies.
1: Did you notice same trend with other composers outside of
3: well we have some data for danny elfman and john williams oh we haven't looked at it yet though oh okay cool well have <laughs> to check in we'll, with you again yeah i think we'll, we'll i think we'll find the same thing
1: there were a couple of other things i was curious about um the missing fundamental phenomenon you mentioned oh yeah and you said that Earbuds wouldn't really work without that,
3: right? Is it? We are surrounded by natural sounds, and we hear people's voices, and we take them for what we perceive them to be. We don't dissect them. when When we are looking at somebody and speaking with them, it's all one. We hear their voice and, and we can understand it. When we're talking to them on a cell phone, it's quite a different experience. Yet we still understand their speech, even though 95% of the signal is missing. Data is expensive, so they have to throttle that down. You're dealing with a speaker that's minuscule, a microphone that's even smaller. And so the object for any telecommunications company is to eliminate any data that's superfluous. The first thing they want to get rid of are frequencies that cannot be reproduced by their equipment, which means everything outside of a bandwidth of about a thousand hertz centered on two thousand hertz. And so you're not going to hear the the bass sounds of somebody's voice. Probably hear the higher sounds much better, or, or think you're hearing them. But we understand speech, of course, largely because we understand the vowels and the consonants. But the particular pitch of the speech is not as important. We can get the inflection without having most of the bandwidth. So the the bottom frequencies of your voice are totally missing in a cell phone conversation and in in most analog conversations. Mm. The same holds true for the music that you hear when you're listening through earbuds. The missing fundamental phenomenon says that we can recognize a pitch even if its fundamental frequency is missing all the harmonics in a pitch point to that frequency
0: mm mm-hmm.
3: mhm so earbuds reproduce the harmonics they don't for all those lower pitches they don't reproduce the pitches at all of course and so many people have subwoofers cuz they really long to hear <laughs> those <laughs> bass pitches and uh, many times they overdo it um, i don't have subwoofers but i don't believe in them <laughs> but i do like hearing a full range signal
1: you also mentioned phonetic palindromes oh
3: phonetic palindromes that's just a, a it's a curiosity and you can find all sorts of things on the web about them uh, also known as audiodromes audio palindromes words and phrases that sound the same backwards is forwards, Say yes is one. Say yes, say yes, say yes. Why is yow, backwards. Yow, why, yow. But the coolest audio palindrome I ever discovered was Johnny Weiss Muller's manufactured Tarzan yell. <laughs>
1: Exactly split, the same. Yeah,
3: it splits right down the middle, and I just reversed it. Huh. I, I heard one time it's a combination of a cheetah and, a, and an orangutan and, and some other sounds. So it's not a human sound. And that was in the, like, oh, like 30s? Oh, in the, or 30s, yeah. Or, huh. I always kind of
1: had this idea to make an album that you could play forwards and backwards and and it would it would be equally interesting.
3: It's been done! Uh Uh-oh! Okay. This is reversed. So that's the very end, played backwards, and here's the beginning.
0: cool
3: yeah
1: of course it was done 400 years ago yeah (laughs) (laughs) so my reverse album idea has been
3: done (laughs) it's been done by uh, Haydn
1: (laughs) yeah uh, you could still do some cool stuff with the
3: recording part too. right if you listen to the front of Todd Rundgren's a wizard a true star he's got some backwards speech in there and he, he's trying to say, a wizard, a true star. I caught up to him in an elevator before, a, a after concert party one time. I said, how did you do that? I mean, how did you go about doing that? Because it didn't really sound like a wizard, a true star. It sounded like, how I watched after true star. You know, and he said, well, I just, you know, I, I wrote it out phonetically backwards and then spoke it and then reversed the tape. I thought, okay, Interesting approach. Yeah. Huh. Well, I would have said it. Yeah. Reverse the tape and then spoke and tried to recreate that and then reverse the tape again. Uh,
1: My friend Mitch, who's been on this show, um, he and my former roommates used to play a game where they would record themselves playing a song and then reverse it, hand it off to the other people, and then they have to learn it (laughs) that way. And then they reverse what They're they are playing and then they find out the secret message in the song. Oh, That's cool. It's like something usually making fun of them. Or <laughs> <laughs> something like that.
2: Ro, we're is not the same. Merrily, 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 live
1: life is a dream. Before we go, I have a tradition on this show of having the previous person I interviewed ask you a question. So Grant Kirkhope, who I had on the show last, he asked, where would you like to be in a year's time
3: with your career? I want to be the king of sand amps.
1: Yes, oh, sand amps. Yeah, we didn't... Touch on that yet what is the idea behind that?
3: every invention solves a problem, necessity being the mother playing on flatbed trailers and bars and playing in studios i 've always noticed that there was some conflict between the engineer and the guitarist. The guitarist, in order to get the tone that he likes, has to turn the amp up and Uh, The engineer, of course, just hates this because if there's other people in the room playing at the same time, you just have guitar bleeding into everything. So the solution would be to create some sort of sound loss between the source, the amplifier, and the rest of the room. So I reasoned the best way to do that would be with something that had lots of mass to it. Then I thought, well, you could do it with sand and put sand inside foam tubes, but gosh, that's ugly. What would a guitarist want to have on stage or in the studio in front of his amp? He'd probably want to have something that looked like an amp. And so I created Sand Amp. Sand Amp, at this point, looks like a Fender Twin Reverb, but it's filled with sand. And a sound engineer, whether on stage or in the studio can use this to place the guitar sound in the mix exactly where he or she wants to. There's been a couple of instances where I've been playing at local festivals, and the guitar player in our band had been very loud. I put a sand amp in front of it, and he actually has to ask the engineer to bring him up in the mix. Mm. Now, you never get a guitar (laughs) player asking the engineer Yeah, (laughs) to make him louder. Yeah. So engineers love it. It relieves frustration. I mean, all of a sudden, these people can be friends. Yeah. In recordings of live acts on stage, often the guitar player isn't even in the recording. You can barely hear him because he's so loud on stage that he has to be pulled out of the mix. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, that's cool.
1: I hope Sandam
3: takes off for you. Well, I hope so, too. Cool. So everybody out there, yep. go to sandamp.com and yeah. see and hear the whole story.
1: Yeah. Do you have a question for my next guest?
3: What is the future of music listening? Ooh, that's good. I can tell you what Bob Moog what? said. Yeah. Bob Moog said the future of music listening is direct injection. <laughs> We are all becoming cyborgs, you know, cochlear implants, right? They have yet to come up with a cochlear implant that can reproduce music. But why not just go right to the audio processing system? Why not bypass all the inner hair cells in your cochlea?
0: Hmm.
3: Go right to the audio nerves, you know, A1. Go right in there with a probe and... That would be weird. Yeah, it would be weird. They're kind of doing it with sight. I mean, they've been able to map the retina, and uh, they've been able to tell what people are looking at just by reading the activity of the neurons. It might be possible to do that with audio neurons someday. Yeah. So
1: we could go up to... Dog hearing level, if we wanted, I suppose. <laughs> yes, we could maybe. all of a
3: sudden start appreciating music up from two hundred kilohertz.
1: Would do you think we? I mean, we probably don't have that built into our brain system, but would we be able to adapt? Maybe if.
3: Um, if you. I don't think so. Um, some insects have six different color receptors. We only have three.
0: Hmm.
3: You know, dogs. Have many more scent receptors than hmm. we do. You'd almost have to have these things implanted at birth. Yeah. Okay, so for all you people out there in thirty twenty five. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said it here first. Yep. <laughs> cool.
1: Roger, thanks so much for having me here.
3: I had a great time. Yeah. Thanks, Charlie.
1: Thanks for joining me for this episode of Composer Quest with Roger Dumas. To check out his studies, just Google Roger Dumas. That's D-U-M-A-S. You can always email me, charlie at composerquest.com, or find ComposerQuest on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks again to my patrons who made this happen. You're helping me live the dream. Also, thanks to Mitch and Gwen for helping me out with the backwards singing. Why don't I quiz you with another backwards song? See if you can guess what this one is.
0: Yeah, ma la la ne snow finer <speaking> yeah not ne las rain. Yeah, <Spanish> ma yo o mi ruthers foramous.
1: And forwards.
0: Some rare old set free more.
1: So there you have it. Stay tuned for new episodes coming soon and new quests coming very soon. So.
0: Звон, 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 self звон, звон,